The Parlor Room is an official podcast of Harvard Business School Online. They had a notion that everyone has a slice of genius. Everyone has talents, everyone has passions. And you as a manager need to make sure you understand what people's talents and passions are because you need to unleash or amplify those individual slices of genius. Welcome to The Parlor Room, where business concepts come to life. My name is Chris Lenane. I'm the creative director at Harvard Business School Online. Today's very special guest is HBS professor Linda Hill. Professor Hill's course, Leading in a Digital World, is part of HBS Online's CLIMB program. CLIMB stands for the Credential of Leadership, Impact, and Management in Business. We talk about Linda's paradoxes of management and what type of leadership it took to produce the Pfizer COVID vaccine in record time. This is a great episode, so let's get started. Welcome to The Parlor Room. Thank you, Linda, for being on the show. I'd like to start with your course, your HBS Online course, Leading in a Digital World. Can you tell us a little bit about the course? It's a pleasure to be here with you, and I'm happy to talk with you about the course. So for the last number of years, I've been looking at exceptional leaders of innovation, leaders who built organizations able to innovate time and again. And we know that if you want to be successful these days, you must be able to adapt and innovate and meet the needs of your customers as they evolve. So the course really focuses on what does it mean to be an effective leader when you actually have digital tools and data to enable you to be able to innovate and meet the needs of your customer? And so we look at really three roles of a leader. The first is the role of the architect. The second is the role of the bridger. And the last is the role of the catalyst. Okay. So all of these roles are really about how you as a leader make sure that you're creating the kind of environment, the culture and capabilities necessary for your team or your organization to be able to adapt. So it's not so much about you know, come up with a vision and follow the leader to the future. It's really about how do you create the kind of culture and capabilities necessary for us to be willing and able to co-create that future together. So I'd like to transition a little bit to your book, Being the Boss. You have a section there called The Paradoxes of Management. I'd like to run through a couple of those categories. I'll give you the headline from each one and maybe give us a little context for them. Sure. So the first one is you are responsible for what other people do. What does that mean? I think I know what it means, but give me a little more context if you could. The first um, paradox is about the fact that, yes, you're the boss. Yes, you have formal authority. But guess what? If you rely on that as a way to influence people who are working with you, you're not going to get their commitment. And today, you need people's commitment. You need them to use their judgment. So really, it's not about you being the boss and using your formal authority. It's more about understanding that when you move into a role of management, you're actually in a role of interdependence. Mm. You're dependent on others, and they're dependent on you to get their job done or their jobs done. So you need to understand that your work is really about working with and through others, and they're dependent on you to make sure you create the kind of conditions that will allow them to be successful. And you're dependent on them to help you actually create the conditions you're going to need to be successful. So the second paradox, to focus on the work, 
You must focus on the people doing the work. So one of the things that I study is how stars learn to lead. And as it turns out, people who are stars have more trouble learning to lead than people who are not stars. Mm. So what you often see is that people who are stars, because they have so much talent, so much energy, they take up all the space, they become the star producer. Mm. They basically pull or push their team forward as opposed to stepping back and creating the conditions that will allow the team to be successful. They actually can abandon the leadership role and simply push and pull as a star until finally they'll reach their limit. That's a tough thing to do, I know, often, is to, is to figure out how to delegate. What's the first best step to separate yourself from only I can do this right? I think the real thing that worries people often about delegation is they know they don't trust their own judgment. Mm yet about who do you trust with a particular kind of assignment, particularly when you're a new manager. How do I know they're going to do it? How do I, you know, what, what's going on here? And I knew I can get it done right or whatever that is. And of course, uh, I think that that's what keeps us from doing it. Plus, usually if you were a star at it, you enjoyed doing whatever that task was. Mm. But I do think it's about trust. And mm. I think there, there are a couple of dimensions of trust. The first dimension is a person's competence. And usually, not always, when you're the manager, you may have more experience and therefore feel you are more competent on a task than the person you're thinking you're going to delegate to. Don't know, not always, because you can have more experienced people on your team as well. The second dimension of trust is really character. Mm -hmm. So competence tells you they know what the right thing to do is. Character tells you they want to do the right thing. And when you're trying to figure out how to delegate to someone, you have, you're trying to figure out both of those dimensions in some ways. Are they competent? Do they want to do the right thing? What's really going on here? And I think until you've been managing for a while, your capacity to make those judgment calls, really, you know, you, you learn how to do it. You learn what, it, what is really evidence that someone is competent, what is really evidence that of someone's character, that they really have that enterprise-wide view. They're going to think about that, the bigger picture, as they're working on this particular task in the way that you would have done. All right, our third point, you must make the group a cohesive team without losing sight of the individuals on it. So this is a tricky one for very experienced managers as well. Of course, you want to make sure that the organization, or your team rather, has a sense of shared purpose, and a sense of shared values. And ideally, some notion of of sort of rules of how they're supposed to interact with each other and think through problems or opportunities together. So when you create that kind of context, that is what allows you to create the sense of a community or belonging of a group of people to a team. So you do want to start with people need to understand the why and feel like I'm, I'm a part of something that's bigger than me. At the same time, what we know, particularly if you're trying to build a team that can be very innovative, is you also have to unleash their individual passions. So another book that I was writing when, when uh, we were writing being, being the Boss was a book called Collective Genius. And the leader that I studied for that book first, studied a whole bunch of leaders after, was the founder of Pixar. And my co-author was actually the chief technology officer of Pixar. And one of the things I learned when I was collecting the data, I'm a, an organizational anthropologist, so I go on site to spend time with these leaders, is they had a notion that everyone has a slice of genius. That's interesting. Everyone has talents. Everyone has passions. And you as a manager need to make sure you understand what people's talents and passions are because you need to unleash or amplify those individual slices of genius. 
So it's really about, on the one hand, unleashing people's individual identities, their talents and passions, and on the other hand, making sure that they're useful to the collective. So if we go back and look at the paradoxes, they all relate to the fact that fundamentally you're trying to use yourself, so you need to be self-aware. You need to be able to think about matching that intent. The role you have as a leader is to really work with other people to get things done. And the other people aren't simply the people on your team. They're the people in the broader organization. They may be your suppliers, your customers, whomever else you're dependent on to get the job done. And the other piece of it, they're very interrelated, is if you want to be able to work on those other two pieces of the network and yourself, you got to get the team right so that you can leverage yourself and have any time left Mm -hmm. to actually manage that network or manage yourself. What's a good example of a leader as a successful change agent? I've been doing a number of uh, cases recently about leaders who've been asked to be change agents because what we know is to be a great leader, it's not enough to be a value creator. You also must be a game changer. You must be able to identify not only what you should be doing but what you could be doing and then figure out how to, how to deliver on that. So one of the leaders I've been studying, and I'd been studying since 2015, was the man who ended up running the trials at Pfizer for the COVID vaccine. And as you may know, that was an instance of making the impossible possible because those trials were run in 266 days. So Michael, when he came to Pfizer, it was the biggest job in supply chain, global supply chain out there. And he couldn't believe he'd been offered the opportunity because he had been at a biotech company. So he was brought in to do a digital transformation of clinical supply. And when he got there, you know, he was overwhelmed in some ways by just how much scope and scale he was now going to have at Pfizer because Pfizer had so many different drugs that were going through trials as compared to the biotech where he had been working before. So his first thing he had to do was build his team. Mm -hmm. And he inherited a team, and many people sort of told him these were not people who were very digital necessarily. You know, you need to bring in new people perhaps. And he looked and met the team and said, you know what, no. I need this team. They know Pfizer. Many of them have been here 25 years Hmm. or more, and I'm new to the company, and I need to learn how this company works. So he kept that team, and frankly, all these years later, most of the team is still with him except for some who have have retired. Hmm. You see many people who come in are change agents, and they change out the team. And many of the people on this team were older than him and certainly had a lot more experience than he did at Pfizer in Mm -hmm. clinical supply. So he kept that team, but he did two things. He said, you know what? I need to make sure we have the outside-in point of view. So he also added to the team what he called a sort of skip-level high potentials. He asked people, you know, he asked the people on the team, who are some high potentials? Can we invite some of them to come to our meetings? So he brought in fresh, younger voices because he wanted to have, again, understand what was happening and and make sure that they always had that fresh perspective. Mm -hmm. Then he also went to his peers around the organization, and he said to his peers, would you allow one of your high potentials to sit in on our meetings? Now, his peers were like, well, why do you want to do this? This is not how we do things really around here. But sure, if the high potentials say yes, then, you know, sure, they can attend your meetings. No one said no to Michael. So Michael ended up with this very large leadership team. This core group had been there together. You know, he was the new one there. Then these skip level individuals, uh, some of whom were really in individual 
contributor roles because mm-hmm. of, because depending on which part of the the business they came from, and then these these people from other parts of the organization. Now his own team was like, why do we have all these strangers in these meetings and we're getting to know each other and they're going to air our dirty laundry to the whole organization? You know all the things yeah. you could imagine if your boss decided to do this. Well, it turns out that doing that was brilliant for Michael. Also, it was a big team. It sort of ended up being like 15 people, kind of unruly to think about how you get decisions made, et cetera. So years later, when they found themselves having to do the COVID vaccine and run that, one of the things that people told me about why they were able to do it is they were very agile because everyone in the organization knew what they did, and they knew what everyone else in the organization did because he had put these people on the team, and they had kind of grown up together. Sure. So because there was that knowledge and that trust, when they needed something, when Michael called or one of his team members called and said, we need your group to do X, Y, Z for us so we can get this done, they knew the people. There was always there was already a relationship in an organization that was fundamentally fairly siloed. The second thing that happened is some of the people who'd been put on his team got promoted faster because they had an enterprise-wide view because they had been on his team. So they had been exposed to, you know, how Pfizer worked more broadly. Some of those people got promoted much faster than they would have gotten promoted and felt quite indebted to him. So when he would call and say, I need you to do X, they'd, you know, they'd think, uh-oh, I owe Michael. They told me this because mm-hmm. Michael's one of the reasons I got promoted so fast. So because he had built those relationships in part to help him understand the organization, but also he knew they needed to work in a more collaborative way, that was one of the things that many, many people told me led to his being able to be successful. So this whole issue of understanding that leadership is not just about your team or the people report to you. Leadership is also about managing those relationships with people. That context around you is something that he really understood. Now, most people don't think of that network piece as being about leadership. Mm. They think about it as being about politics, right? Yeah. Uh, There are politics, but it is a leadership role, and it's critical because you know and I know now if you want to execute seamlessly, if you want to innovate, a lot of that work is horizontal. Are you ready for some questions? Okay. Okay, here we go. Here's the first one. I'm supposed to ask the questions. Usually. <laughs> But I have the red cards this okay, time. So I have to be flexible. I'm, yes. I'm ready. Okay. You're being very empathetic right now. I, I am. Thank I'm trying. I'm doing my best. Okay. What would you say is the most important lesson you have learned about what makes a great leader? So the greatest leaders that I have met are always thinking about how they're preparing for the future as they also deliver for the present. And preparing for the future is really about creating a team or an organization that actually can be agile because the world does change. And so those are the best leaders. So they are leaders who understand you want everyone in the organization to be a value creator and a game changer, to work on shoulds and coulds. doesn't matter where they sit in the organization. So they work very hard at creating the kind of context that will allow that to happen. And that, that's hard to do. Second question. Mm-hmm. What is one key tip you would give for building strong relationships with your boss? The first tip I would say is that bosses are human. They are deeply imperfect, just like we're all deeply imperfect. So that's the first thing. They're deeply imperfect, just like you are. Mm -hmm. And two, they're as dependent on you as you are on them. So recognize that interdependency 
and take the time to empathize with them as a consequence. But as one CEO said who came to visit, I used to be human too, but I think we often forget that. Perfect. I love it. All right. Third question. What do you think will be an important skill for future leaders to focus on? So I, for my new book that I'm working on, that the working title is Scaling Genius. I don't know what the title will be because the publisher gets to choose. This is where you don't have so much influence. Sure. Critical skill for the future is bridging. And I have been trying to do lots of stories about bridgers. One is a story about Nicole Jones, who works at Delta. And she was asked to create an innovation lab for Delta Airlines to make sure that they had the digital tools and data they needed to create a new kind of customer experience. And so she heads up this innovation lab and finds herself working with government, with TSA, with customs, with Clear, because Clear is one of their partners. And I think uh, Delta has actually invested someone in them. And then all the different pieces of Delta to, to offer us really biometric um biometric tickets, et cetera, so that we won't have oh, to touch wow. anything. We'll just walk through the airport eventually. I guess you can do this at the Atlanta International Airport. You just get out of your car. You come into the airport. Don't need any paper. You walk through the whole airport and get on the plane. Wow. With this, um, with these new kind of biometric tools. Now, they started first working with fingerprinting, as I don't know if you use clear or anything like no, that to see that. But now they've gone to facial and they had to do that partly because of COVID because people didn't want to touch stuff. Sure. So we see people in these roles where she has a team of, I don't know, 16, 20 people to really bring in digital transformation in the customer experience. And that requires bridging with all of these different categories of people to get stuff done. So she's an example of what we're seeing a lot of, people who are asked to come run these corporate accelerators, um, these innovation labs, et cetera, to make sure that their company has access to talent and tools that really aren't necessarily inside the organization. Mm -hmm. So she's sort of the bridger between all the startups they're working with to get this stuff done and the internal parts of the organization that have to operate the way an airline needs to operate very efficiently and safely, et cetera. So she's a bit of a buffer and a translator. Because again, what we see is most organizations don't have what they need inside. Or Raja, who is works for um, the government in, in Dubai, was asked to create a an innovation lab on the metaverse. So she's been traveling. She's been, uh, there are other pieces to this, but she's got to figure out how to travel the world, figure out who they should partner with, who they should try to entice to come to Dubai to work with their financial institutions to deliver the metaverse, which is part of what Sheikh Mohammed wants to see happening. So we see many people being asked to do these roles where they have no formal authority and they're working with people either locally or globally who they have to figure out how to influence and inspire to want to be a part of a, a new ecosystem that's being created to, to deliver us new experiences. So these bridgers, I hadn't really thought about it as such a specific category, but they're so essential based on where we are now and will carry a lot of influence as well. Oh, oh, for sure. They're very the, – the, the two that are really fun for me <laughs> are two uh, airlines. They were engineers at ANA, the airline mm -hmm. industry. They came up with the idea of teleportation. They came up with it or Star Trek came up with it? A business. That oh, is a about, real version Yes, okay. a real version of teleportation. Okay. So they went and spoke to all the quantum physicists and everything and discovered it'll be another 40 years before we can teleport the whole body. Oh, my God. So they are tele they're teleporting instead human consciousness. 
So what they're doing, they have these avatar robots, and okay. they have one up on the International Space Station, and they're working with really technologists and scientists all around the world, real business, to figure out how to send across, if you will, all of our five senses and our consciousness so we can work in places where you know we're not physically able to get to. And this is real business. Everyone wants to invest in it. It's just growing like you wouldn't believe. But the way that to, to create that, the ecosystem necessary to deliver this capability, hundreds of different scientists and technologists they're working with. But what I really loved, talking about managing your boss, when they went to the CEO of you know, this airline, ANA, and said they wanted to go into the teleportation business and they thought ANA should. Yeah. The CEO said, he said to them, You mean like in, in Star Trek? And they said, Yeah. What? And without the body right now, because we can't do that for a while, but we, we're going to think long term. So they, they're, they're, they're at it. I have more questions about that. Okay. 40 years until the body can be. Yes. Teleported. They're actually they're, we talk about them in the course. Oh my gosh! We went to Japan and shot and met with a lot of the people they're working with. They're working with any number of players to get access to the technology needed. So they worked with X Prize to get to figure out who were the best people in the world at developing uh, the haptic hand, which you sort of need to touch from mm. you know when you're not there, if you will. And it's it, it's it's been a blast. And they're teleporting senses right now. They're well. They're working. The ones they're working on right now. What they're it's it's relatively primitive. Sure. Because they're still developing the technology. Even if you think about the Wi-Fi issues you and I have, mm-hmm. so to try to teleport even um, voice or, or or sight or something to some locations where they're trying to go is not easy. Yeah, And it can be quite expensive until you get that all worked out. So there's a whole telecommunications. They're building out a global platform so that you and I can rent one of these general pers- purpose avatar robots, like you'd almost get an Uber or something, to do what you want it to do. So yeah. people can use them now to go sort of fishing um, to – there's one up in space. When COVID happened, people, grandparents used their – their robots, their avatar robots, to visit with grandchildren. Again, this is still primitive at this point, but these are the use cases they're working on. Wow. So we're going to have fun in the course. Well, Linda, thanks so much. Thank we you. We covered a lot of ground, and I really appreciate you coming on the show, and I'm looking forward to the course. Thank you. I'm looking forward to it, too. If you'd like to learn more about Professor Hill or her HBS online course, Leading in a Digital World, please visit us at theparlorroompodcast.com. Remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, X, Instagram, and TikTok. My name is Chris Lanane. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying The Parlor Room, please share the show with your friends and subscribe, rate, and review it wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. Thank you.